And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. And welcome to another edition, a very special edition, of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, you know, these days anything can happen and it's not limited to this time of night. Um, This is going to be a very special show and somewhat complicated for you, the listener, or the viewer. And I say viewer advisedly because we have this phenomenon on this show called Radio with Pictures. And tonight we have a lot of pictures. So limber up your smartphones. If you're at the computer, make sure you're on the other side of midnight.com because I'm going to lead you through to where you can see some astonishing history that 50 years ago tonight was not discussed on radio and television or in newspapers of the time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's kind of practice. Go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, what NASA has been hiding for over 50 years about the moon, part one, for July 20th, 2019. That will take you to the guest page. And tonight, we have no guests. I'm your guest and I'm your host. I'm kind of wearing, well, you know, the multiple hats because I have an extraordinary story to tell you. I'm going to try to take you through the last 50 years of my, shall we say, awakening to the fact that the television production at CBS that I participated in 50 years ago tonight with Walter Cronkite and a cast of thousands spread all around the world at all kind of remote locations, including where I was, which is at the Rockwell um, Corporation in Downey, California. And I'll explain more about that in a few minutes. Um, We're trying to bring you the the visitation for the first human beings in the modern era to the surface of the moon. So now that you're on our guest page, scroll down. And under radio with pictures, you will see my items. I have three news items tonight before we get into the substance of the evening. Uh, First item. Today, exactly 50 years after Neil and Buzz landed and walked on the moon, a new crew from Russia, from Italy, and from the United States went up on a Soyuz rocket and rendezvoused this afternoon with the International Space Station, which, of course, 50 years ago did not exist. In fact, 50 years ago, we and the Russians were, shall we say, enemies, avowed enemies. We weren't cooperating. We were competing in space. They tried some last-minute hijinks, in fact, during the uh, flight of Apollo 11 to the moon. They sent an unmanned spacecraft, which they attempted to land on the moon before Apollo 11, and it crashed. I think it was Luna 15, but don't hold me to that because it's been, well, it's been 50 years. Item number two. On July 22nd, which our time will be tomorrow sometime, the Indian government is going to attempt to launch its second unmanned mission to the moon, literally in the week of Apollo 11. Fifty years after Apollo 11, this mission is going to take a spacecraft called Jandrayaan 2 and a lander and a rover, which is attached to the lander, and get to the moon by September via a very economical, low-energy routing, which takes several months with phasing burns and all that to get out of uh, low Earth orbit and into a lunar transfer trajectory. Uh, 
But by September, and I don't remember the exact date, the Indians, if they launch tomorrow, our time again, because it's going to be the 22nd for them, um, they will have a leisurely couple, three-month trip to the moon, and then they will go into uh, orbit, and they will land a lander and a rover for the first time. This is a big deal because, you know, our missions cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and they apparently are doing this for something like $170 million, which in the space business is very, very, very inexpensive. Now, hopefully, we can beat that. And when I say we, I'll kind of get to that maybe later tonight or maybe tomorrow night. Because remember, this Apollo 11 anniversary programming spans two nights, tonight and tomorrow night. And while tonight I'm going to show you things that really are going to knock your socks off, tomorrow night we have the gang. They're all going to be here and some surprise guests. I think uh, Clyde Lewis, who is one of our rival competitors over on another network, he's going to drop in. He has some pithy things to say about Apollo. And our friend Ken Johnston is going to be here. He was actually with NASA, with the Apollo program back in the day, and he's going to talk about how he – basically taught Neil and Buzz how to fly the lunar module when uh, they came up to Grumman, which, of course, was the uh, subcontractor that built the lunar module spacecraft for NASA back in 1969. Anyway, item number three in Radio with Pictures. Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins had a meeting yesterday in the Oval Office with family and friends with the president, And the president made some proclamations about uh, the 50th anniversary and uh, then some other comments. And this story is very intriguing because right there on camera, Buzz Aldrin told the president he's very disappointed in NASA and that they haven't really been doing what they needed to do for the last 10 or 15 years. And it's kind of an interesting piece of video. So if you want to take a look um, now, you know that we have our model that the reason that this president has uh, suddenly announced that it's a very high priority for his administration to go back to the moon before the end of his second term in 2024, of course, assuming he's reelected, we have a feeling with some interesting data that we may have, and this program had a hand in this, because as you know, we prepared at great expense and loving care, Kintia spent weeks and weeks and weeks editing, something we call the presidential briefing, which is at the very top of the homepage and is at the uh, very top of the guest page. So that was delivered by means of a trusted intermediary, someone who I've known for many years and who has been a friend of Donald's for many, many years. This was kind of hand-delivered, if in this era you can talk about electronic you know, conveyances as being hand-delivered directly to the president sometime after November 14th. And lo and behold, a few months later, while the budget cycle of NASA was literally in the Congress being processed by the appropriate committees, suddenly the president makes a call to Jim Bridenstein and says, you've got to get back to the moon, not by 2028, but by 2024. And all of NASA is kind of wondering why the, why the sudden urgency, because This is the same guy who, of course, is going to run again and who could be elected or not, uh, who didn't seem to care about landing on the moon in his second term just a few weeks prior. And then suddenly he was all, as my grandmother used to say, hot to trot. 
Well, I have a feeling that maybe the presidential briefing video had something to do with that. Now, what we're going to do with tonight's show is we're going to make up a presidential briefing video, too. And just in case the president hasn't had a chance to look at the lunar section of the first briefing, we're going to be spending a lot of time tonight on what is really on the moon. And so without further ado, why don't we get into it? So you scroll down in Radio Pictures and click on item number one, where it says Richard's Items. That's the official NASA Apollo mission seal, the mission patch. And if you click on it, it gets bigger. I mean, take a look at that. Does that kind of look familiar? Um, it's got, you know, Apollo at the top. It's got NASA at the bottom, you know, around this gray circle. The inner circle is the Earth, of course, with the white trajectory spiraling out from the Earth around behind that strange-looking A, looping around and landing on the moon, which has a face on it, the man and the moon. Actually, that's supposed to be, I think, Apollo. But if you look carefully, in the middle of this patch, there is a constellation, the constellation of Orion. And Orion, of course, in the Egyptian, if it's anglicized, is pronounced Asar, A-S-A-R. So the A, which everybody in the mainstream thinks stands for Apollo, in fact, in our decoding of the deep, deep ritualism that we found in NASA activities going back at least 50 years tonight, that A stands not just for Apollo, but also for Asar, which is Osiris, which is Orion, which is the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon, and thereby, as you have heard from many, many other programs we have done, hangs a very, very interesting tale. Well, as I said a few minutes ago, tonight was the night, and I'm going to try to recreate what I was doing 50 years ago, almost to the hour. Because if you look at item number two, that's the New York Times headline for July 20th, 1969. Men walk on moon, astronauts land on plane, collect rocks, plant flag. You know, headline writers really are a breed apart. It says it tersely. It says it in a minimalist few words, but it says it all. Mankind, men, two of them, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, 50 years ago, within a couple of hours, set foot for the first time upon the moon in the modern era. Now, you'll hear me say that a few times tonight. Because when I was back at CBS, when I was working for Walter Cronkite and the entire crew that broadcast to the world and this nation all the events of this night 50 years ago, I had no idea that we weren't at that time the first human beings to set foot on the moon. I have learned a lot in 50 years. What I'm going to try to do tonight is kind of take you through the process of how I came up the curve how I figured out that everything we were told that night was not, as they used to say, the rest of the story. It took me 50 years to figure out the rest of it. And the rest of it comes with an extraordinary, uh, shall we say, backstory. The next two links, three and four, I mean, there's a, a Buzz Aldrin standing next to the lunar module. Um, you might click on that because if you 
if you look carefully, you'll see um, his spacesuit. You'll see the right uh, foot pad of the limb there with that kind of cylindrical-looking gold-plated, foil-plated thingy in the lunar dust. That was one of the probes on the end of the foot pad that hung down so that when they uh, touched the moon first, the um, switching system turned off the engine. So the lunar module literally fell the last uh, 15 to 20 feet. They're about 15 or 20 feet long. There's only a part of it there exposed in the lunar dust in front of Aldrin. And that was to ensure that they didn't gouge a huge crater under the lunar module when the rocket was firing, coming down, and blowing away the dust because NASA was afraid that if they kept the engine firing all the way to contact with the flat foot pads, that there, it may excavate so much lunar regolith or soil that it could literally excavate a mini crater and one of the footpads could have wound up in the crater. It could have tilted the lunar module on landing and made it impossible for them to leave. So the idea was to have a mechanical means as a spacecraft lowered itself on its single rocket and, and the engine would then be cut off electronically well above the surface and in a vacuum the... Uh, the thrust dissipates very quickly, and so they fell the last 10 or 15 feet, and there was a small jolt, and they were on the moon. We'll get, also the, get to all that in a couple of minutes here. I want you to notice one other thing. Look carefully at the front of Buzz Aldrin's spacesuit. You see his right arm hanging down. His left hand is clutching something. We're not quite sure what. Those are connections for oxygen and the, the power supply for the PLIS, the portable life support system, which is on his back. But you don't see what all the astronauts on subsequent missions carried to the moon uh, on 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Of course, 13 didn't land. They carried cameras. On this mission, for some reason, and again, that's a detail that we may or may not get into tomorrow night, um, Buzz Aldrin did not have a camera. It was Neil Armstrong who had the camera on his chest pack, on his spacesuit. So 99% of all the pictures you see of an American astronaut walking on the moon, again, 50 years ago, tonight, within an hour or two of the time right now, they're all taken of Buzz Aldrin, and there's only one or two shots um, of uh, Armstrong and that's basically by the limb. Now, was this by accident or was this by design? There is a controversy. Why did we not have photographs of both astronauts? Particularly, why don't we have photographs on the surface of the moon of the first astronaut to walk on the moon, to come down the ladder, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, that is Neil Armstrong. Very interesting question, which we may or may not get to uh, tonight, but we will pick up tomorrow night when we have some folks that we can kind of kick it around with. Okay, so back to Radio with Pictures. Now, of course, item number four is my old friend Walter Cronkite. You know, someone asked me the other night in email, they said, what was it like to work for Walter Cronkite at that young age? Because remember, I was only 23. I mean, I wasn't, as my grandmother would say, not even dry behind the ears. And here CBS reached out, tapped me on the shoulder and said, kind of uh, metaphorically, uh, we'd like you to help us go to the moon. I mean, I learned so much about so many things 
in the several years that I worked as a uh, science advisor to CBS News and to this man, who at that time, when networks were only three plus PBS, um, was considered and written about in many, many mainstream newspapers and publications all over the world, the most trusted man in America. Well, there was a reason, because Walter had an integrity, and I, 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 I'm, I'm so grateful, having learned literally uh, working with one of the masters, what that journalistic integrity was all about. Things we would cover, things we would not cover, positions we would take, positions we would not take. I mean, I remember enormous uh, meetings, you know, with producers and associate producers and me and others sitting around discussing whether so-and-so was worthy of being a guest on the CBS Evening News or on CBS Space Coverage. And one of our producers, who happened to be a woman, her name was Joan Richmond, pointed out that because there were only three networks and each had roughly 15 to 20 million viewers, kind of slicing the pie roughly in thirds, give or take, that whatever we put on the air had the potential for enormous influence. I mean, now with social media and the internet and all that, there's a whole cadre of people who are called influencers. What? I mean, influencers? I mean, Walter Cronkite was the influencer. So whatever Walter said had to be checked six ways from Sunday to make sure that it was correct. And that was the really stressful part of my job because, believe me, I did not want to be the guy who provided Walter with wrong information. And lo and behold, my heavens, if it ever got out on the air. Fortunately, I, don't, I can't remember looking back any time when I blew it that badly. Uh, there were some close calls where we had to, at the last minute, make some corrections to copy and scripts and all that. But uh, we, we never we never put stuff out on the air that was blatantly or even non-blatantly wrong. And it's because there was a, a kind of an esprit de corps where we checked and double-checked and triple-checked and called sources. And remember, we had no Google. We had no Internet. We had phones and Rolodexes and sources and people we could call, but we did not have the extraordinary benefit of a global, international, inter, you know, almost intergalactic brain, which we do now. And I've said many, many times, you know, Google is your friend. Well, oh, that we would have had Google back then. Our coverage could have been so much better. Anyway, let's um, kind of continue because I don't have a lot of time and we have lots of stuff to go through. So if you look at image number five, click on that. This is one of the images that came directly from the Parks Radio's antenna uh, in Australia, which was the side of the Earth and the NASA ground station that was turned toward the moon the night that the uh, landing occurred, actually the afternoon and the evening of the uh, first EBA, the first and last EBA of um, Apollo 11. And what I'd like to do is to kind of take you back in history now. I, I'd like to kind of play some 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 audio here because, um, well, it's it's kind of interesting how how it all sounded that night. So without further ado, let me check my pots and we are go for landing. Okay. 
No video. It's just air to ground. Fourteen hundred feet, still looking very good. Roger, twelve oh two. We copy it. That's five degrees. That's the weird alarm. That five degrees. Seven hundred fifty. Coming down to twenty-three. Seven hundred feet. Twenty-one down. Thirty-three degrees. 100 feet down at 19. 540 feet down at 30 and at 15. Then 400 feet down at 9. Cape forward. 150 feet down at 4. 30 half down. on uh, horizontal velocity. 300 feet down, three and a half. 47 forward. What up? On one and a minute. One and a half down. 70. Got the shadow up there. 50 down at two and a half. 19 forward. Altitude, velocity, light, three and a half down, 220 feet, 13 forward, 11 forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet, four and a half down, five and a half down, 160 feet, six and a half down, five and a half down, nine forward, that's good, 120 feet. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward, five percent. On any bite? Okay, 75 feet, that's looking good, down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Bites on, six. Down two and a half. Forward, forward. 30 feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down, straight shadow. Four forward, four forward, drift into the right a little. 30, down a half. 30 seconds. Forward, just, good. Okay. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, both auto, decent engine command, override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. And that's the way it was, July 20th, 1969. 
You know, watching that, listening to that, I actually got goosebumps all over again. And, of course, you know how it turns out. You know they're going to make it. But that, you know, 60 seconds less of fuel and then 30 seconds. And if they had flamed out, if that engine had quit because of lack of fuel at 200 feet up or even 100 feet up, they would have crashed. They probably would have died on impact. They certainly could not have lifted off again. And they would have died a slow death of oxygen starvation because they only had limited oxygen for, you know, like a day or two on the moon. And even if they'd survived the impact, it would have been, well, it, it, it would have been awful. Fortunately, none of that took place. None of that took place. Um, what we're going to try to do tonight is to go into why did none of that take place? Because, I mean, the, the background to Apollo to making Apollo work, to pulling off a technological miracle in um, eight years, almost from a standing start. I mean, that has been one of the profound mysteries of our era. In fact, it's developed into an entire cottage industry. There's a whole bunch of people who basically claim that we didn't do this, that this was done on a soundstage, that this was done, you know, as some kind of extraordinary elaborate hoax that um, there's no way that the American people and the American enterprise and 400,000 contractors could have uh, pulled this off in the time that, that actually was allotted. And, of course, I can only speak for myself, having visited you know, some of the contractors, having visited some of the NASA centers when I was working for CBS and Cronkite. And I got to tell you, I met an awful lot of incredibly dedicated people who were working themselves into frenzies in their personal lives. The divorce rate shot up. Uh, there was an incredible, um, shall we say, turnover rate in relationships because people were 100%, if not 110%, focused on the mission, which was get Americans to the surface of the moon and home safely. So when we come back, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I'm going to talk a bit about... Uh, um, you know, some of the interesting controversies before we swing into some of the really interesting stuff. You can skip uh, item six and seven. You can look at those. Those are interesting images. Uh, seven, um, eight, nine, and 10 are really intriguing, and, and 11, because the Smithsonian this past week, in fact, tonight on the mall, um, they lit up the Washington Monument with a huge 360 three-foot-tall replica, a projected replica of the Saturn V that took American astronauts to the surface of the moon. And uh, you could, if you'd been on the mall tonight, uh, they had viewing parties, and they actually went through the whole liftoff and everything. They had, you know, video. And so if you kind of scroll through those images, which end at number 11, you'll see what we've done, we meaning the United States, to kind of recreate uh, what was done many, many, many years ago to um, to make people realize what it was that we all had uh, had, had been able to, to carry forth 50 years ago. Um, unless you actually see the um, scale of the Saturn V, and I was fortunate enough to actually see um, a couple of them, um, you really have no no idea of how big this sucker was. I mean, it was so amazingly huge. It was, you know, 363 feet tall is huge, 
Well, of course, on the scale of the Washington Monument, which is 555 feet tall, um, the projection doesn't even reach to the top. That's how big it is. And, of course, when they were projecting last night and tonight this actual real live images of the uh, of the rocket, you could walk up to the base of the uh, Lincoln Memorial and you could actually see the um, the uh, scale of the engines, those huge F5 engines. So um, anyway, um, let's kind of get into the swing of things here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hogan. We're going to be playing some space music tonight. This is a music uh, a, a, a album called Armstrong, written by a guy named John Stewart. We shall return. Not enough to wear, not near enough to eat. But don't you know he saw it on a July afternoon? He saw a man named Armstrong walk upon the moon. And a young girl in Calcutta, barely eight years old. The flies that swarm the marketplace, the sea she don't get old. But don't you know she heard it on that July afternoon? She heard a man named Armstrong had walked upon the moon. She heard a man named Armstrong had walked upon the moon. Anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. 
Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. anniversary of Apollo 11, 50 years ago tonight, the Moon River extended literally to the surface of the moon, as two men from America, from the United States, named Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, walked upon the surface of our nearest, our only satellite for the first time in modern history, spent several hours looking at things, planting flags, setting up TV cameras, taking lots of pictures before they returned to the limb for a very fitful sleep before they uh, tried to leave the moon, which will occur on our time frame uh, tomorrow afternoon. So they spent a little over 24 hours on the moon. They landed our time this afternoon. They'll leave, you know, our time tomorrow afternoon. So they literally spent about a day on the moon, but only a few hours outside walking around. And what I want to do now is I want to talk a bit about what this could mean. Because 50 years ago, the world was even more fractionated than it is now. It is, you know, terribly uh, discombobulated. There's, you know, threats of war. We don't have an over an overt threat of nuclear war right now. Although North Korea is very uh, unsettling and troubling. We have no idea really what Kim Jong-un is up to. But back then... It was the Soviet Union and the United States with 50,000 warheads between them facing across the North Pole with the potential for a miscalculation, a mistake. There were several early warning radar uh, misfires during those years, and we were all on hair, hair alert. So this night was looked on by a lot of people as a way to, to bring humanity together, and it did. 600 million people, maybe the largest television audience ever. I'm, I don't know whether any uh, program now has kind of exceeded that. But at that time, 600 million people was an awful lot of people to be able to, uh, you know, fit into uh, looking at uh, one particular event. And it's, it's pretty amazing that uh, after all these years, after all these incredible years, um, that has not been surpassed. So let's kind of go back and pick up our, 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 our thread of the story. Uh, let me change the screen here. If you go to number 13, on the, let me tell you how to get there. You go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on uh, the banner for tonight, for July 20th, the banner for the part one of our two-part Apollo weekend for July 20th. Click on that banner, which is at the top of the home page. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down to radio with pictures, and you'll see a list of numbers with images. To the left-hand side of the numbers, right-hand side of the images. I want you to click now on number 13. Because the space program that John Kennedy was able to initiate 
or to, in terms of fulfilling the, the ideal of going to the moon, was really picked up and initiated by a previous president who was kind of unsung in, in global history. His name was David Eisenhower, Dwight David Eisenhower. And he, he played an extraordinary role. He was president, of course, in 1957 when the Russians shocked the world by putting Sputnik into orbit. And he refused to be panicked. He was a general who had led us to victory over the Nazis in World War II as the supreme allied commander in charge of D-Day and all that. And he got back to the States after the war. And many, many years later, he ran for president as a Republican, and he was elected. Well, he had a lot of things to contend with, not the least of which is, as I said a few minutes ago, this constant day and night threat of nuclear war, of nuclear confrontation. So, I mean, a lot of you are probably too young to remember something called duck and cover. Uh, I'm not, and I'm sure there are many in the audience who are not. This was, you know, drills in school once a week, once every two weeks, whatever, where there would be a simulated nuclear attack, and you were supposed to quickly get out of your desk and get under the desk and that was supposed to protect you in the event that the Russians came over the pole either with bombers or later with missiles and devastated the American heartland. It was called duck and cover. You'd be in the street, and there'd be you know air raid wardens, and they would basically say, okay, um, Russian attack underway, and you're supposed to run to the nearest concrete wall and duck behind it, and we were told that would you know save your life. I mean, you look back now, and of course, it's, it's, it's absurd, but we lived for decades under this almost psychosis where there were people on this side and on the other side who were claiming that both nations could survive a nuclear confrontation. Well, Dwight Eisenhower, who was a general, realized, of course, this was silly. This was absurd. And uh, in some years later, he talked about the military-industrial complex, particularly in that speech, when he uh, left the presidency and John Kennedy took over, very famous speech. You know, you might you might Google it and listen to it sometime. Very enlightening in light of the things that we see going on around the world today. Anyway, Dwight Eisenhower wanted to propose to the Russians, to the Soviets back in the heyday of duck and cover, that both sides would be more secure, and the odds of an accidental uh, triggering of a nuclear confrontation would go way down if both sides had a real understanding of what was going on on the ground on the other side. So he proposed something called open skies, where we would fly reconnaissance aircraft like the U-2 over the Soviet Union, and we would have cameras and we would inventory missiles and you know readiness and troop deployments and all that. And the Russians would have the same entree into American airspace so they could have photographs showing what we were doing or not doing. And this information on both sides would lower the tension, lower the potential for miscalculation, lower the possibility of errors, human error, um, misapprehension of signals, radar, whatever, whatever, which, as I said, happened several times during the long Cold War where we based off against each other with 50,000 nuclear warheads. Well, the Russians, Khrushchev at the time, who was the premier of the Soviet Union, the head of the uh, Soviet Communist Party, 
he turned um, he turned uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower down. So in that vein, this president turned to another technology. He looked at a time when you know we barely could get you know like uh, Explorer One into orbit in 1958-59. He looked to the idea that that the United States could put a satellite in space capable of flying over the Soviet Union 24/7, orbit after orbit after orbit, and then deorbit film, bring the film back, and look at what the Soviets were doing in terms of bomber, you know, deployment, missiles, airfields, troops, etc., which of course was all the harbingers uh, before World War II of the um, uh, readiness for a nation to go to modern warfare. And he tasked both the CIA and the U.S. Air Force with some help from an agency called the RAND Corporation. So if you click on item number 14, this is their official logo. This was the um, uh, Project Corona, which functioned as an operational satellite gathering information system in Earth orbit from 1960 to 1972 before it was supplanted by other programs like Gambit and Lanyard and uh, they all had these code names and ultimately the KH series uh, which stands for keyhole and the and the analogy was you know you're looking through a keyhole you're spying through a keyhole to attempt to find out what the other guy is up to that's how the whole flotilla of keyhole satellites which are basically Hubble-sized telescopes in orbit that instead of looking up to the heavens like Hubble, they look down at the Earth and they take incredibly high-resolution images. Um, but you can see, if you look at this item number 14, if you look at this um, you know, title slide, Corona 1960-1972, if you look at the bottom under the spacecraft, which is there in schematic form, this is the background of an actual Corona image a bit JPEG because it's uh, much bigger than it normally should be. But that white cylindrical-looking object under the spacecraft at the bottom kind of right of the screen, that's the Washington Monument as photographed from 100 miles up by an early Corona satellite with the film uh, neatly wound up into an ejection capsule, uh, ejected from orbit, re-entering, and then picked up by an air. Well, we'll go through the whole thing of how they did all this momentarily. But this was the beginning of Eisenhower's open skies, except it wasn't just the sky. It was open space. So if you look at item number 15, click on that. This shows you the kind of mission profile. You have the launch. You have the deployment of the spacecraft. Um, you have fuel dumps. You then have the initiation of the photo, um, uh, photographing it. They typically would spend from a few days to maybe a week or so in orbit. If you look at number 16, this shows you the schematic of how the film was deployed from a cassette. It wound up past lenses, very uh, long focal length lenses, 24-inch uh, focal length, 7-inch wide objective lenses. A 7-inch wide telescope is a damn good telescope if you're looking at something just 100 miles down. Now, remember, back in those days, the the military, the Air Force, and the CIA had no idea whether this could even work because 
there were all kinds of questions like, can you see down through the atmosphere or will the atmospheric scintillation so blur the images of features on the ground that basically you can't see any detail and they would be militarily worthless? Um, or could you, could you function technologically with a camera in orbit in zero gravity? Or did you have to have gravity to, to basically help you sprocket the film, et cetera? And they did run into one very unusual aspect of, of doing camera work in a vacuum in orbit. And that was something called electrostatic discharge. If you reel film on a dry day down here, let's say in the desert, you'll get light streaks because the, the, the film, of course, you guys don't know about film. We old timers, we know about film. Anyway, if you rolled film in, in a camera that was very dry, it would pick up an electrostatic charge and then the charge would eventually discharge, causing a bright flash of light where you don't want light, which is inside the camera with unexposed film. Well, they apparently in orbit had severe coronal discharge problems. That's what the, uh, the problem is technically called. And they worked a lot on suppressing the pickup of charge when you roll acetate film past the, um, past the uh, rollers in these cameras that were not apparently um, isolated and insulated in terms of inert gases or whatever. Uh, they were exposed to a vacuum. And in that condition, they still had electrostatic discharge, even though they tried all kinds of experiments. So some of the missions uh, were light fogged hopelessly so they couldn't see what they were looking at. If you look at slide number 17, again, go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. Click on tonight's banner for July 20th on the part one of our NASA Apollo 11 50th anniversary weekend. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down in radio pictures to item number 17. Click on that. Now, this is how the, um, the film was recovered. Remember, this was prior to television from space, prior to internet, prior to digital technology, prior to CCDs, prior to any of the technological wonders that we take for granted and make your smartphones possible. This was an era of analog film. So they launched a spacecraft, kept it in orbit for several days or maybe a week or so, took lots and lots of pictures. I mean, some of these spacecraft, you're not going to believe this, they had something like 30,000 feet. I'll repeat that. 30,000 feet of film in one spacecraft. And they took picture after picture after picture, and it wound from the you know, deploy reel past the uh, lenses of the camera and all that to the take-up reel. And that was then bundled up in a little capsule, which was ejected. You can see the ejection sequence here. And it was then uh, deorbited. It re-entered. It had its own uh, heat shield and all that. And then at about 60,000 feet, they deployed a parachute. And at about 15,000 feet, an old slow C-130 military aircraft. You'll see that in number 18. This is an actual photograph of a recovery, an aerial recovery over the Pacific Ocean of one of these film capsule canisters successfully re-entering and being snared by the equivalent of an aerial trapeze, which kind of tugged behind the parachute. And then, of course, that folded over. And then you would electrically reel on a winch the trapeze into the open 
cargo bay, the you know the back door of the C-130 is open to the air, and there are technicians standing inside, airmen, Air Force guys, strapped to the sides, who manhandle the capsule into the aircraft, and then it's ferried to Hawaii, and then it was you know sent to the uh, United States, the mainland, and within like 24 hours, if there was a major problem going on in the world, some kind of uh, activity somewhere, some military buildup, um, the CIA and the Air Force could deploy this technology, put it in orbit, take lots of pictures. Some missions were as little as like a day, and those didn't have the 30,000 feet of film in, of course. And then they would return the capsule to the Earth, rush it to the lab, develop the pictures, and photographic experts would then look very, very carefully at every frame and all the details, and they were able to detect um, objects down to a few meters, maybe 10 feet across on these early corona satellite images, which completely revolutionized the idea of us versus them. And eventually the Russians, the Soviets developed their own satellite technology, and eventually this you know, retrieval of film was superseded by electronic developments where you can send, you know, incredibly high-grade uh, HD imagery live, you know, anywhere from anywhere on Earth to anywhere in the, uh, the you know, annals, the, the, the halls of the CIA or the other intelligence agencies. We've got like 17 now that need satellite imagery of some hotspot to kind of peer over somebody's shoulder and see what they're really up to. It revolutionized the idea of being blindsided in a war by guys preparing for war and you didn't know what they were doing. It was basically open skies on steroids. And what was very interesting is that when the first uh, coronal uh, spacecraft were launched, one of the things that the Eisenhower administration looked for was a vigorous um, uh, dissent and protestation at the UN by the Soviet Union that we were somehow violating their their airspace that in fact did not occur um, because the Soviets obviously saw that if we could do it then technologically at some point they'd be able to do it and they didn't want to forestall in an era of great paranoia on both sides their ability to look at what we were doing like we were able to look at what they were doing so as I argued to um, uh, Phil Class one day uh, when I was at CBS and Phil Class you may Recall, some of you was a huge uh, anti-character in the whole UFO um, syndrome. He wrote, you know, editorial after editorial debunking UFOs as silliness and stupidity and, you know, kind of uh, mass hysteria and whatever. He was actually the aviation space writer for Aviation Week in Space Technology, and I had occasion to talk to him several times. In fact. When I actually had lunch with him one day and I was discussing my perspective that Eisenhower's open skies, you know, satellite technology had literally prevented World War III. Eventually, several months later, Philip came out with a book with that as its thesis. So, you know, that old um, that that old um, uh, adage, um, you know, uh, poor poets plagiarize, great poets steal. Well, Phil Class stole my idea, and God bless him, he's no longer with us. Um, he wrote a very important book, which got a lot of policy people, a lot of policymakers, to realize 
the importance of space, not just in terms of national pride and, and you know, kind of pat yourself on the back and, you know, beat the Russians, show the world that you're better, but with fundamental technological supremacy to be able to look down on the other side of, um, of, the, of the world and to see what skullduggery somebody might be up to that would uh, portend bad things if you didn't know what they were doing. So this technology totally revolutionized the planet. Well, it's the basis of that technology, in the middle of that technology, I should say, that we had something else occur. Because we had a president go to the well of the House of Representatives on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., on an afternoon of May 1961, and he basically said, um, based on the uh, activities of both the U.S. and the USSR in space, he basically said this. The dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is Chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not, where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. And thus it began. You know, we actually, I actually heard that speech on radio that afternoon it was an incredible call of a nation that had basically almost put nothing into orbit, was badly outdone by the Soviets at every turn. I mean, we had Flopniks and they had Sputniks. Uh, we had all kinds of very dramatic failures and they had all kinds of dramatic successes. You really have to put your mind back into that era or have lived through it to realize the audacity of this young president to have set a goal so incredibly high, so visionary, so literally out of this world 
among the men and women and the policymakers and the politicians he was addressing that afternoon. I mean, literally, NASA had just been born. It was created by an act of Congress pursuant to President Eisenhower's uh, uh, wishes back in 1958. So we're talking literally just a few years. We're talking a fledgling program with, you know, Alan Shepard has just gone into suborbital flight 15 minutes up and down like a big arc and, you know, has been met at the White House. And the NASA people were freaking out because, good God, they thought this man, this young president, is out of his mind. There's no possible way that we could do this in any reasonable time frame. Well, eight years later, tonight, 50 years ago tonight, John Kennedy's vision and confidence and faith in the American enterprise, I love the sound of that, the American enterprise, was totally fulfilled. We made it. We accomplished the impossible on a record-breaking time scale. Now, it did have what at the time was called DX priority, meaning, meaning that Apollo had the highest priority on resources, materials, technology, manpower, anywhere in the nation. If Apollo needed something, according to presidential directive, it got it. That's the only way you can make something impossible really happen. We will be looking, I'll be looking very carefully to see whether this president, Donald Trump, follows suit and accords uh, Project Artemis, who was the sister of Project Apollo, Artemis was the sister of Apollo, if Project Artemis gets the same DX priority, if it gets the same extraordinary treatment, um, we, will, we will see. We will see. This is the police, a little ditty called Walking on the Moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're reliving 50 years ago tonight, Man Walking on the Moon.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. 